Welcome to the start of a two-part series here on Retire Smarter, where Kevin interviews retirement researcher Dr. David Blanchett. In part one, David and Kevin take a deep dive into some key assumptions made during retirement planning. They'll touch on things like investment returns, longevity, inflation, and much more. Let's kick it off and get things over to Kevin to get today's show started. So on today's episode, I'm really happy to talk about some of the retirement evidence that belies our Retire Smarter solution. Um, We've talked about a lot over the years, uh, and probably more so on the investment side than anything about the importance of having a science-based process, uh, of having a process in general, but having empirical evidence behind it to support it. The joke that I always like to make is, you know, if you're going to have surgery, you know, do you want to have exploratory surgery where somebody's going to try to figure it out when you're cut open? Or do you want to have a predetermined surgical plan from a very experienced surgeon who's been treating patients like you for many, many years with a lot of success? So today we're going to dive into the retirement research. And uh, we are very, very lucky to go ahead and have uh, Dr. David Blanchett on the podcast today. So David is uh Currently, he's the head of retirement research at Prudential's Asset Management Arm, or PGIM for short. And and correct me if I, anything I say is wrong here, David, but I think previously you were at Morningstar with the same title. So head of retirement research, very smart guy, uh, MBA from Gold Standard at the University of Chicago, and a PhD from a similar Gold Standard uh, for financial planning from Texas Tech University. So uh, I, did I get that right, David? All right. Well done. All right. Awesome. And uh, the, the one negative, sorry, I didn't know this from your Twitter profile, but you are a Bengals fan. Now, that's, <laughs> I guess I could be forgiven being that you're in proximity to Cincinnati, but we have offices in Pittsburgh and in Northeast Ohio. So you're probably not getting a lot of love uh, from those areas. Well, now, I mean, to be fair, though, a long suffering Bengals fan. It's been a, a rough, a rough life for me up until this year. So that's fair. And I think most people can get behind Joe Burrow. He's an easy to like kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading, I think this is when you were at Morningstar, but one of the first papers that uh, that I remember seeing on retirement spending, and I just kind of you know, went through um, your historical papers here and just pulled a few of those off. So I thought we could maybe just talk about those and, and what you found and what are some of the key implications for retirees. So uh, some of them uh, estimating the true cost of retirement in 2013, exploring the retirement consumption puzzle, um, really uh, intriguing title there. So can you share a little bit about the work that you did in those papers? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, you could argue they're a bit dated, but I think that even today it makes sense because retirement is the most expensive purchase that a household makes, right? So, you know, I think the average cost of a home in the US now is like 350K. You know, iPhones are going to cost $10,000 at some point. Um, But retirement is going to cost over a million dollars for most people. And I think that the assumptions that we use as financial planners and even just normal households use to figure out what it costs is really, really important. So in, in that research and even in kind of future research, I've kind of explored, well, what assumptions do you use for things like the growth of the assets? What do you use for the assumed inflation rate? But the goal of that research has really been to kind of ask these questions. Are the assumptions that planners use in financial plans really the best that they should be? And I and, a lot of times the answer is yes, and other times the answer is no. So you talked about assumptions. Um, so maybe we'll kind of go there for a moment. Um, so if we think about like a retirement plan, you know, there's maybe a few key variables, right? You know, how much are we going to earn? What's inflation going to be? What are we going to spend? How long are we going to live? Um, do you feel that any of those variables are more important than the others when you're constructing a plan? 
Well, so they're all kind of like levers, right? So when you think about about the way that the assumptions, any kind of plan or even any kind of model affects things, they all can kind of move things up and move things down. So, you know, one example of something that's important, especially right now, is the fact that we're in a, you know, a lower return environment than we have been on average historically in the U.S. Um, the U.S. has had some of the best returns globally over the last 150 plus years. And so, you know, oftentimes a lot of retirement planning research and even in financial plans, you see people use historical long-term averages as the return assumptions. And, um, you know, what I'll often hear someone say is, oh, I, I do that because, you know, we have 90 years of history and, you know, or 100 plus years of history. And my concern there is that, you know, individuals use financial plans to create reasonable expectations, right? We're doing this exercise because we want to give someone some idea about how much they have to, for example, save or spend. And a problem there is that, you know, the, the long term average yield on uh, 10 year government bonds is, is, is over 5%. And obviously interest rates have kicked up recently, but we're still well below that long-term historical average. So I think that, you know, for example, with respect to returns, it makes a lot of sense to make sure you're using something that's more forward-looking versus a pure historical average. So we're gonna predict the future here and look at some of these you know, expected returns, if you will. Um, what do you think's reasonable these days if we just look at maybe broad asset classes for stocks and high quality bonds? I think that like, you know, if we think about like, you know, so 10-year government bonds is kind of the, the standard yield that people look at. I think that where yields are today is really kind of the best guess of where they're going to be. So if I'm thinking about the next 10 years, um, I, I, I wanna use a relatively low return assumption. So let's just say we're using you know three or 4%. Now, um, what no one knows though is where yields might be in 10 or 15 years. So you know, I'm, I'm not opposed to having return assumptions kind of um, uh, you know, revert back to the long, long-term historical average. But I think it's really critical to, uh, you know, factor in today's market environment for, um, you know, near retirees because they're not going to earn 5% on government bonds. Now, if we assume that, that you know, for example, government bonds are going to yield 3%, you probably can't assume that the return on stocks is more than, say, 8% or 5% above bonds. And so, you know, those numbers are, are well below historical long-term averages, when you when you factor in um, the impact of volatility on those, it, it still means that that you're going to have about a 3% realized return in bonds, but the realized return on stocks drops to about, you know, five or 6%. So I think that, that you know, it kind of a meaningful impact on a plan in terms of using, you know, especially for the near term, more forward-looking estimates versus historical long-term averages. So I, one of the things you shared, I think, is really important, uh, maybe to reemphasize. But you talked about, uh, I'll say, average expected returns, but the fact that uh, mathematically, because things vary, and it's kind of the the math of compounding, right? That the compounded return is always going to be less than the average return. So I think you mentioned in stocks, maybe maybe eight, but once you factor in on an average basis, but when you factor in kind of the compounded returns, maybe we're more looking something closer to 6% or so. And I think this is one of those things where, you know, people sometimes forget or, 
you know, we have a lot of engineers that we serve and they'll, you know, the engineers love spreadsheets as do I, and you know, put a return assumption into, you know, an Excel and kind of make some projections over time and with no variability. And, you know, it looks awesome, you know, look how, how much money I have, you know, at the end of my plan, but, um, that variability or maybe sound a little wonky here, but like a kind of a volatility drag, the compound return is always going to be less than the average return. And I think that always bears, you know, is worth repeating. Um, so one of the things that I, I, looking at this, I just, again, kind of went back and looked at some of the historical stuff that you had done. I won't say I'm going to call you out here because you're, you're in the vast majority. Uh, and I don't know if anybody really would have predicted what happened to, you know, actual returns over the last several years, but I was looking at a 2016 presentation that you did while at Morningstar and it, it was the best guess 2015 return expectations. And I, I certainly don't expect that you're going to remember this unless you're Rain Man, you know, definitively. But would you would you maybe take a stab at what you would have guessed the 2015 return expectations were back then? Probably pretty low. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that I, I undershot the ball. Well, I, I don't know if, if it's that under where we are right now, given what's happened in 2022, but probably a pretty low estimate in the grand scheme of things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the bonds were uh, and they were kind of staged, as you said. So I'll call them dynamic. So you, I, you had them broken down between like one and 10 years and then, you know, kind of long term, 20 plus years, what have you. But um, for stocks, you know, it was basically between one to eight percent, depending on the asset class, you know, whether it's small stocks, you know, large stocks, value or growth, what have you. Um, and then uh, emerging markets were the highest at eight percent, and then bonds were in a minus one percent. So those were the kind of the shorter term, one to ten year, and you know what we're seven or so years into it right now. Um, and candidly, I mean, I, I, from what I was reading and looking at the time, I mean, I think you were in the majority. But the reason why I'm bringing this out is just to emphasize the people you know, just the uncertainty and how difficult this is. Um, and looking back over the last several years, well, I tell you, when you think about those return expectations and maybe the building blocks that you would get to say, you know, having a stock expected return, not to get too wonky, but what are some of those building blocks that go into forming those expectations? Yeah. So first, um, if it was a negative return, it was probably a real return, which is the return after inflation. And you know, why that's like, I think, really, really important is what we're seeing so far in 2022, right? You've got um, stock markets are down, um, bond markets are down and inflation is up. And so, so for example, even if bonds are down 10%, inflation's up 5%, their kind of realized return um, on an after inflation basis is actually negative 15%. Um, but so thinking more about like, you know, what are the building blocks of returns? Well, there, there is things like, you know, the expected return on the risk free assets. So, um, for example, like 10 year government bonds, there's also things like inflation, there's expected growth. But those are what the, the pieces you tend to see are used in these models. Now, you know, what's kind of cool is, you know, so I work I work at, at PGM, which is the asset management group of Prudential. You know, we actually have a group that releases quarterly capital market assumptions. And so. Um, you know, our our expected return for for bonds and fixed income has increased dramatically, um, you know, for, for this quarter versus the previous quarter. Well, you know, like what happened? Well, bonds have gone down, like, let's just say by by 10 percent. And so because they've gone down, that means that if you know how bond mechanics work, you know, there's an inverse relationship between returns and yield. So interest rates have gone up. So going forward, the return on on fixed income should be higher. 
because we have a higher yield, but investors had to realize a negative return along the way. And so what, what, what you tend to see out there is that is, is the higher the markets go, especially for stocks and bonds, for example, the lower the future expected returns, but then those kind of can correct themselves based upon uh, maybe like a, a, a drop or an increase. All right. So the, I'll call what I've been telling clients and even saying on the podcast so far this year, it's at least to date, it seems like we've kind of had a repricing of risk, if you will. So you know, going back from those 2015 expectations and a lot of other very, you know, I would say smart, um, well-processed uh, people and firms had these, you know, market expectations where, hey, you know, these are kind of our assumptions for growth and for inflation. And here's the risk-free rate, which is fairly easily observable. But, you know, the, the one of the biggest ones that I think that impacted over the last several years was really just the change in valuation and really predicting that people were going to bid up the price of stocks as much as they did. Um, you know, whether it's exemplified through something like, you know, a, a price to cash flow or price to sales or, you know, kind of a smooth version of that or what have you. But it was just pretty remarkable. I think a lot of people, the mantra was, hey, the market's looking pretty expect expensive. We have to go ahead and temper return expectations. And now looking back, say over the seven year period, yeah, we did grow a little bit more than I think expectations generally were, but it was really kind of that, you know, that call it animal spirits, just the fact that people really bid up prices of those assets. Um, is that what you have observed as well? You know, I'm, I'm a pretty practical guy. I mean, you know, I, I, I also remind myself that, that I don't have that crystal ball. I mean, if I, I was very good at predicting market movements, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in research. I'd be, I'd be running a hedge fund, right? So I think that, you know, to me, it's, it's just more of like, like, like what are the right general expectations, right? And so I think that, that no one knows what's going to happen, but we have to kind of take that kind of best guess of where things are headed. And, you know, that being said, you know, I, I've been, again, I've been shocked at where rates have gone the last, say, three months. I have, I have no idea where they're going. I think, you know, like lots of folks could say they're, they're doomed to increase or they're going to increase. Others would say that they're going to fall. I think that the, the key is just kind of having a, a plan, you know, to kind of understand, well, based upon where things go, which no one knows what's going to happen, this is what you're going to do. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, so one of the, you know, if we kind of circle back the assumptions that go into a plan, so returns, which we just talked about, spending, which we haven't gotten to just yet, longevity, inflation, you mentioned. So if we circle back to spending and some of the research that you did about those spending patterns, um, what were some of the uh, implications or just some of the observations as well as the implications that, that you gleaned from the research back in like 13, 14? Yeah, so and I've actually done quite a bit on this since then. So it's it's still very much current and others have done on it before and after. But I think one of the most important takeaways was just this notion that, that you know, almost every retirement research project out there and the vast majority of financial plans assume that, that retiree spending increases lockstep with inflation every year and doesn't change no matter what happens. And, and, and that's not very realistic, right? I mean, like the first thing we observe is that it, retirees actually don't increase their spending by inflation. So, I mean, literally in these models, it almost assumes that, you know, inflation for a given year was, let's just say it was 4.1%, that the next year that retiree household spends 4.1% more, okay? They, they literally call their advisor and say, hey, I need a 4.1% raise. And in reality, what you see is that retiree households tend to actually reduce their spending um, one to 2% a year versus inflation. So if inflation is say 4%, 
they only increase their spending by say 2% um, in the next year. And that can make a really big impact on the longer term implications of how much someone spends. Because if that if that number's dropping by say one and a half percent in today's dollars every year, that can really add up over the span of say 20 or 30 years. Now, the one kind of interesting kink to it is, is that um, if you're still alive when you get to these older ages, say 90, 95, um, the median person actually continues to see a decline. The problem, though, is the average increases because for the if you the average is, is is if you add up everyone and divide by the number of people, it actually starts to rise again because some folks have um, effectively incredibly expensive medical costs. And so, you know, what you observe looking at this relationship in general is this thing that I call like the retirement spending smile, which is just that spending tends to decline in today's dollars early on in retirement. But if you're still alive at older ages, say 90, 95 plus, there's a decent chance you might actually have increases in your spending just because of um, uh, medical costs. Okay, yeah, I, that's... That's great. There's a lot there. I'd like to unpack that a little bit. Um, so I guess said another way, you know, let's say that, you know, I'm 62, uh, my wife and I are retiring and whatever our lifestyle was at age 61, it's going to be pretty similar at age 62. And then uh, on average, you know, kind of assuming that we are kind of that average 62 year old married couple. Um, I'm curious if, as you kind of peel that back, well, two things uh, initially, can you just share about like, how do you actually, you know, uh, what sort of data sources do you use? How do you actually arrive uh, at these observations? And then also I'm curious about like specific, maybe spending categories that, that may really change over time. I know you mentioned healthcare towards the end of, you know, kind of like the lifetime, but how do those spending categories, when you kind of peel the onion of spending back, um, how do those change, you know, going through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s? Yeah, so there's like a really fun model that came out, you know, probably 20 years ago about this idea of the different phases of retirement. And you actually see this in the data. So when I'm looking at data, there's a, a study called the Health and Retirement Study that's been done ever since 1992. Um, and it's it's biennial where every, every two years they go back and, and ask the same people like a, a thousand questions. I don't know how they get folks to actually participate in the survey. But but what it allows you to do is is track the households over time to see like how they're changing. So um, a lot of a lot of um, surveys are what's called cross-sectional, where you just ask you know one group of folks the question once, then a new group of folks the questions at some point in time in the future. The fact that you can track the same households over say a twenty-year time horizon really lets you understand better the decisions that retirees make over time. And so I think that that's a really important kind of you know, it's been a huge benefit for individuals that do research on retirement. And I would say that most most academic papers that are exploring retiree decisions over time are using what's called the health and retirement study. Now, that being said, your second question is there are some interesting changes in how spending evolves over time. Um, you know, if you were to ask the average retiree, um, hey, how do you think retiree spending changes over time? If, if, if they didn't think about it, they would say, oh, well, my guess is it rises faster than inflation. Right. And the reason that I've, I've actually gotten that response is because people say, hey, I know that, that individuals as they age spend more on health care. And everyone knows that health care spending has risen faster than base inflation. Therefore, it would stand to reason that individuals spend more over time. Right. But in reality, what you see is that while individuals do devote a larger share of total expenditures towards health care expenses, they spend a heck of a lot less on everything else. 
what you have is a situation where, you know, if you're a younger retiree, you have the, uh, the capacity and the desire to go out and do stuff. Um, but over time, that, that, that desire to kind of go on the cruises, the vacations, whatever, um, declines it at a pretty sharp rate, especially if you have healthcare issues. And so when I talk about, you know, assumptions to use in a financial plan and the fact that spending does tend to decline over time, what I'm really trying to do is help people understand how to best utilize their savings where it actually might make sense to take that, that vacation or that cruise when you're a younger retiree, say 62 or 65, because odds are, if you're still alive at say 90, you're not gonna do that, do that same cruise, have that same expense. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. It's, it's in practice, it's one of those things too, where, um, usually it takes, I think a little while just to be comfortable with that transition. And there's always, uh, I don't say always absolutes are never a good thing, I guess, but, um, generally maybe a little bit of transition skepticism, I would say where, yeah, sure. People want to do things, but it, well, I'll say it another way. Um, I'm surprised at how often we're nudging people to spend. Um, and I think they're just as surprised that we're nudging them to spend. <laughs> and in practice, you know, the spending behaviors become ingrained um, over time. And, um, you know, they continue to do well, save, earn, invest, maybe add reasonable returns, and their wealth continues to accrete over time. And then they're in a completely different financial paradigm, but they still have the same ingrained spending behaviors. Um, and it's just one of those interesting um, sort of catch 22s where you know, the same behaviors that cause them to be in the you know very envious position financially that they're in are the same that pretty much preclude them from maybe doing a little bit more and enjoying a little bit more. Um, I'm curious, do you, do you get into the behavioral aspects at all about helping people spend and consume and enjoy things a little bit more? Well, so that, I think that's a really great point because, you know, I'm not going to say that financial plans are like fear based, but but it always focuses on on one risk, which is going broke at some point in older age. And that that, that is that is a risk. I, I totally agree with that. But what, what, what often worries me, too, is the other risk, which is, you know, I, I worked for 30 or 40 years to save for a time. And then I'm so afraid to spend my money. I don't enjoy it. And so I think that what that takes is is realistic perspectives on on, you know, how long you have to plan for what you have to do. And, um, you know, maybe this is somewhat counterintuitive, but the more money that, that people have in in guaranteed lifetime income sources like Social Security, the more that they tend to, to spend because they're less afraid about going broke. I mean, it, it is it is it is so hard to figure out how much you can spend from a portfolio when you have no idea how long you're going to live. I think there really is at least an academic argument there that it, it does make a lot of sense to simplify that equation by allocating potentially more than the average person does to some form of guaranteed lifetime income. Yeah, that's great. I, and I definitely want to go there. I guess before we move on from uh, the spending part, though, um, when you look at the data, um, do you observe differences between, say, high income or high spenders or low income and low spenders? And, and if so, what are those? Well, so the interesting thing is that um, like there, there's a few effects here. So, you know, one question that I got a lot was that, oh, David, individuals spend less as they age in retirement. Is that just because everyone's broke? Right. Is that because people realize that they don't they can't afford to keep spending? And if you actually kind of break out the different households and the different groups based upon what they spend and how much they have, even the folks that have lots and lots of money tend to reduce their spending on average. So it's not it's not an effect one where people that have, you know, are just are just so broke they can't 
afford to spend more, so they have to spend less. The second thing to your question is that is that you do tend to see smaller declines in 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 reductions, smaller reductions among those who who have lower overall spending levels, right? If you think about it, you got someone that spends say twenty five thousand dollars a year in retirement. A lot more of what they're spending money on is 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 non discretionary. They have kind of less room to kind of cut back if they want to. But any someone that's spending say you know two fifty k in retirement a year, a lot of that probably won't be there when the person's ninety five years old because it's 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 more things that are that are leisurely or you know non discretionary that they can cut back on if they want to. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great, and I think it that sort of framework between we. we whether it's you call it discretionary or non-discretionary or needs or discretionary or some form of that, that framework um, in practice and working with people, just one, everybody's different. You know, some people will put charitable goals in um, the non-discretionary or the needs. Others will put it a little bit lower down the totem pole in rankings. Um, everybody has a little bit different priorities in life, but just to sort through those priorities, one, I would say first and really truly measure their lifestyle. <laughs> Candidly, that's probably the most difficult part of the whole financial planning process, at least getting good data and then massaging the data and throwing out any true one-time extraordinary expenses and really deducing what that lifestyle is. Sure, we have you know some technology that's starting to make that better over the last several years and we've availed ourselves and our clients of it um, but you still have to kind of clean up the data um, make sure things aren't double counted um, throw out those one-time expenses things like that um, but then after we have that just to have the client sort of frame it in with their own values and in their own terms what is truly a need and is kind of non-negotiable is non-discretionary in those things where hey things don't go maybe the way that we hope you know, we can go ahead and have that predetermined plan. This is where we're going to cut them back from that sort of mental accounting or that framework. Um, I haven't seen any studies on it. I've certainly seen studies about mental accounting, but it just really seems to help people, particularly in times like we're going through now when the markets are down and maybe, you know, they see their success rates or safety margins or funded ratios or whatever we're using to kind of measure their financial planning uh, success likelihood. It just really helps in practice to go ahead and do that. That concludes part one of our conversation with Dr. David Blanchett. If you have any questions at all for David or especially for Kevin, you want to talk about your financial or retirement plan, a great way to get in touch is to go to truewealthdesign.com. You can click the Are We Right For You button to schedule your 15-minute call with an experienced advisor on the True Wealth team. Again, that's truewealthdesign.com or by calling 855-TWD-PLAN. That's 855-TWD-PLAN. And we've put that contact information in the description of today's show, so it's easy for you to find. Join us again in a couple of weeks when we release part two of this conversation where David and Kevin will get into a couple of additional topics. They'll be talking about Monte Carlo simulations and their role in proper planning for your financial future. Uh, they'll do a deep dive on guarantees in retirement income planning, things like annuities in, in that family of the investing and saving world. And uh, they'll touch a little bit on cryptocurrency as well. All that and a few other topics on the agenda for part two. So come back and join us for that. For Kevin and David, I'm Walter Storholt. Thanks for joining us. And we'll talk to you next time on Retire Smarter.
Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed. All performance reference is historical and not an indication of future results. Benchmark indices are hypothetical and do not include any investment fees.